most of the golden age science fiction isn't actually as expensive as foundation is because it mostly sticks to the solar system and they have a very clear idea of what the solar system is like which is completely wrong we later yeah. found out but it's always I've called it the, the jungles, the jungles of Venus. Uh, yes, the jungles of yeah. Venus, the deserts of Mars. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Selden Crisis. My guest today is Cora Bullert, an indie science fiction writer from Germany and an expert on Asimov's foundation and on the golden age of science fiction. Cora is a prolific writer, having published over 100 works in various genres and a nominee for the prestigious Hugo Award for Best Fan Writer. Uh, a winner, actually, by now. A winner? Yeah, oh, I won excellent. last year. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, her passion for speculative fiction, combined with her talents as a translator and educator, has made her a prominent voice in the science fiction community. With a keen interest in cultural commentary and a strong advocate for the genre, Cora's insights into foundation and her perspective on the golden age will surely make for an engaging and enlightening conversation. So welcome, Cora. Yeah, thanks for having me back. <laughs> and uh, you are calling from Germany, I believe, right? From Bremen? Yes, I am. No. Bremen in North Germany. In North Germany. Okay. Um, well, great to have you on. I have talked to you before uh, with uh, Paul Levinson. We had that uh, discussion after the last season of Foundation. Uh, that was a lot of fun. And I've listened to you a couple of times on the Star's End podcast, where I've also guested a couple of times. Um, and I always found your, uh, your commentary really interesting. Uh, I also have really enjoyed uh, reading your blog and your reviews of the Foundation TV series, uh, I find them like the writing just so superb and, and just Thank a you. delight, a delight to read. And even though sometimes I disagree with some of your uh, takeaways and your 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 opinions on things, uh, I always end up feeling like, wow, this was really worth reading. And, and so that's the way it should well. be, I think. Thanks. I'm always glad if someone is reading them because uh, there are quite a lot of work to do. I hope the one for the um, for the last episode will go up from either probably tomorrow <laughs> or late oh, tonight good, if good, I still good. get it finished in time. Well, they're worth waiting for, even if they're a little bit be behind. Yeah, the last one was fine. delayed because the Dragon Awards got in the way. Uh, and I've always been commenting on them. So yeah, that was two days. That was a, was a whole day of blogging about something else. <laughs> Well, let's get started with a little bit more about you, if you don't mind. Uh, if you you would, is, is there anything you would like to talk about that you've been doing lately? You know, you can talk about your Hugo Award or um, <laughs> any of your other work, like um, with uh, your you have a um, your own pub publishing company, Pegasus Pulp, right? Yes, um, but um, it's been a while since I think the last thing I published was um, just before the holidays because um, I've been very busy with work and also with um, family stuff, um, sick elderly parents and so this year. So the writing fell a bit by the wayside, but I've, I've just had two things come out. Come out, I have, a, I have a story called Rest My Weary Bones in the current issue of um, Swords and Sorcery magazine, which is an online scene. 
mm-hmm. scene. And um, I also have a, have another story out um, called um, A Cry on the Battlefield in the anthology The Little Cozy Book, published by Wingraph Magazine of Cozy Fantasy. So those mm. are the most recent things I have out. Those are not my own publications. Of course, um, none of this is really, um, it does delve into, let's say, fiction which coexisted with founda- with the original foundation stories, but it's not really about foundation. So if you want something that's about foundation, foundation, I have an essay in Asimov's Foundation and Philosophy, Psychohistory and its, dis- its Discontents, edited by Joshua Heter and Joseph Thomas Simpson. I was going to bring that up because yeah. I okay. read. I, I imagined you would. And I yes, just, I also won a Hugo Award. See, yeah. I, okay. Am I ahead of Asimov? Asimov won his first, I think, in 1965 or 66. So, yes, uh, he's a few years ahead of me. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, Asimov's right. problem is, of course, uh, is of course that um, a lot of his best work was done before there were Hugo Awards. So, he, he didn't. So, he, the entire original foundation stories were were already published before the Hugo Awards started, started lots of the robot stories. He did get a few highly deserved retro Hugos later on. He, and he got the, um, uh, the voted the best science fiction trilogy, wasn't it? With yes, the, the he did win. Foundation? It was a one-off vote in, I think, 1966, I'd have to look it up, for the best ever science fiction series. And the uh, and um, the finalists were Lord of the Rings, which was the one they really wanted to award because it had just come out in paperback in the US and it was a huge success, but it was not Hugo eligible because the book had come out in 1955. Mm. So it didn't work. And then the other finalists were, well, the foundations, the, foundations, the original foundation trilogy because there was nothing else, mm-hmm. else at the time. And um, the Basum stories by Edgar Rice Burroughs and, um, um, yes, Landsman by um, Oscar Lark, one of the one of the E. E. Smith ones, and um, Future History by Robert A. Heinlein. And everybody assumed that Lord of the Rings would win, and Foundation won. That was Asimov's first Hugo's, and he did win another for Foundation's Edge in the early 80s. Yep, Which I think was right. also a kind of lifetime achievement award, because it was like, it's Foundation, we love, we love it. <laughs> Yeah, and it, it's still one of my favorites in the whole series, Foundation's Edge. It's so great. Yeah, Edge is pretty good. I'm not a fan of, of Foundation and Earth. Edge is a really good one. Earth yeah, is so um, Earth. It was, Earth of... is a down down note to end the series on, I think. I think it had a lot of really good points, too, but it did have a lot of downside. There were parts that were hard to drag through, and there were things that were kind of cringy, like, Golan Trevise's sex scenes, you know. Yes, um, that was like, okay, no, I don't need to read that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, So back to uh, your essay in Asimov's Foundation and Philosophy. Um, I really love that. Uh, First, I want to talk about that book just a little bit, because um, I think everybody who's into Foundation, you know, and really the, the themes in it, the philosophical themes, the history, the societal impact and all that um, should really read that book. It's got a, a whole uh, set of, of wonderful essays on uh, a bunch of different topics like um, foundation and philosophy, foundation and history, foundation and faith, uh, foundation and uh, science, uh, foundation and uh, what was the last one? I think the, the 
the mind or something foundation, foundation and consciousness yeah. probably um and some of those foundation and we have foundation and morality and foundation and being foundation and being that's the one and i just finished like think i think the last one was on determinism and free will uh, which is a major theme in foundation and uh really beautifully explored uh, a lot of really great stuff there was one on foundation and extended mind that i really liked uh, but your essay was great and it was on um the, the on faith as represented in the tv show compared with how it is in the uh in the books yes which because, is quite, um, quite different <laughs> it's very very different because um basically in the books it's uh, religion is it's a it's a scam and it's literally the opiate for the masses. It's what keeps um, four kingdoms at bay and Ascone or Asquon or whatever it's called, it's pronounced. We don't have Asimov here to ask him. Ask yeah. him into, um, it's also used to, as a weapon by the foundation to keep, uh, to expand their influence and keep other populations, uh, populations at bay and under control. And, um, when I read those books, I first read those stories, I was like 16, 17. I had become disillusioned with a uh, with, um, Protestant, was would have been Lucerne Protestant Church because um, well, in North Germany, everybody in my region is Lucerne Protestant, unless they have immigrated from another part of Germany or are immigrants from Turkey and so on. So that's, um, so yes, I was, um, so I was a bit disappointed, not so much with the church itself, but with some very hypocritical and very, very religious people. So this whole, oh, it's all a scam and it's science dressed up as miracles. Miracle, of course, the uh, Lucerans don't do miracles, but the Catholics do. And uh, Lucerans don't like Catholics at all. And we're saying, oh, that's silly. They believe in miracles and so on. So yeah, this is just something I left onto as a teenager and thought, wow, that's so cool. And um, by comparison, uh, I, the TV show has a different approach because it takes uh, the religions seriously. Both the uh, luminism in the first season, which gets, which is not at all in the book, but gets a whole lot, a, hu a lot of, of time in the series, this whole luminism arc. And of course, um, in season two, we do see this Church of the Galactic Spirit. And uh, I, love the, I love the guy who plays Polyverisov. And mm -hmm. also Brother Constant, they're, they're fun, they're great actors, but uh, it's interesting that they are, that they both uh, sort of, well, let's say they use their own opiates because they actually do believe in their own religion, which, mm -hmm. um, the, high, which um, the high priest like Polyverisov doesn't believe in the books, doesn't believe in his own religion. He knows it's a scam. I get the impression that maybe Polyverisov in the show doesn't isn't a true believer. I, it's hard to tell. And it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting with his. Holy is a, he's, he's obviously very, very smart. I mean, how Harry Selden, yeah. who's not a true believer and thinks it's all knows it's all bunk. Yeah. <laughs> and thinks so. That, and also said so. So that Hulu interaction so. in the vault was very interesting where, uh, he asked him about why he killed the warden. Uh, and yeah, there's been different interpretations of that, you know, his his look back at Harry as he was leaving uh, to me it looked like a, 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 a you know a shaken faith kind of look back at him like yeah. <laughs> you know do I really want to you know commit my my whole life to this guy um, was that a, an acceptable answer um, uh, others think that you know he's he's uh, just enthralled to have 
to have met his hero and you know i think the, it might the, be a case of never meet your heroes <laughs> yeah that's exactly what i thought <laughs> right actually um i i never met i never got to meet uh, isaac asimov uh, Moff, even though he I think it would have been 19, I think it was 19 or so when he died. So in theory, it would have been possible, but in practice, um, I was simply too far away from the science fiction community, which was very US centered at the time. And I always, and for a long time, re regretted that I never got to meet him and tell him how much I loved his stories, how much they meant to me. But I mean, um, we know that he was, uh, that he was also a serial harasser, sexual harasser of women. I was 19. I was quite cute at the time. So yeah, I okay, maybe you... it's nowadays. I think it's maybe it's better. I never got to meet him. I was thinking of getting to that topic at some point uh, as mob and <laughs> women, but let's hold off on that for just a second. Yes. Yeah, I I was um, also. I have the same feeling uh, of that. I wish I'd met him, or at least met you know that I had attended one of his lectures because I wasn't that far away he was in New York his whole life you know and I was I grew up in Pennsylvania in western Pennsylvania around Pittsburgh so you know he was giving lectures occasionally and I could have attended one if I and I was a huge fan but I, it just never occurred to me that you know people die and you don't that you have a chance to see them again yeah and he I, also died too early actually too oh, early yes. because no, none of us um it's not actually unexpected nowadays if you know what happened, but um, at the time yeah. no one knew. And I remember being really, he was so famous that his death was reported on the radio or TV news. And I was literally shattered. I think I haven't been, been this shattered for, for a long time. I think the next one which shattered me so badly was, uh, was um, the dual death of Carrie Fisher and George Michael. Michael, which was long, long which was 2016. This was 1992, so yes. Yeah, I think the the closest comparable for me was uh, John Lennon. Uh, I remember Kerry. John Lennon's death, but um, I was uh, seven at the time, and it was like, okay, everybody's very sad that that the singer died, and he was shot. That's very sad, but um, I didn't really connect him to the to the music because um, I was seven and hadn't really been. I'd heard the music on the radio, of course, but I didn't really connect. Okay, this person is so very very important. Yeah. I was in my late teens, so I yeah, that's uh, about him. those were the, the people who were who were shattered. The older siblings of friends and so on. The old one older sibling of a friend kept uh, kept his Beatles record running on on a constant loop to mourn to mourn John yeah. Lennon. And and, and so to on. hear about it from Howard Cosell on Monday Night Football, it just seemed wrong. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, it was John Lennon really was way 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 too young. He was only he was yeah. only forty. Yeah. So Cora, um, can you tell me a little bit about how you first became acquainted with the writings of Asimov? Okay, and I had heard of Isaac Asimov because he was uh, very famous at the time. It was would have been the been the late eighties, and um, his name was actually occasionally in um, in crossword as a as it was occasionally a question in a crossword puzzle. My mother liked crossword puzzles, but hmm. I'd never read anything by him. I, prob I probably had seen Fantastic Voyage by that time, but okay, <laughs> you don't really need to see that one. At any rate, um, and I looked at this book. It was, um, the author was, I knew that the author was famous. It was a science fiction book. I looked on the back and it said something about a mathematician who knows, who realizes that, um, that the galactic empire will fall and that bad time, times are coming and that he wants to figure out how to 
predict the future and thought, wow, this sounds cool. So I bought the book and uh, started reading and uh, yes, I was actually grumpy by the time I had to get on my flight back to Germany. Germany, I kept reading through the flight, which was a very unpleasant flight because I was seated, uh, I had an aisle seat and directly behind the first class, which was curtained off and the flight attendant always swept that curtain into my face. And there was also, also a woman woman in the window seat who was um, who was all drinking uh, drinking all the time because she was nervous. I think, the, I think we probably had another stopover because I don't think we had a direct flight from Essence. But at any rate, I read the book. I was uh, totally engrossed, forgot the flight and everything else. Uh, else, And then I then when I came to the end, sometime when I was home, because um, Prelude is uh, quite sick by foundation standards, I realized, wow, there are more books like this. This is a series. And I said, okay, I have to read all of them. All of them. So um, the next time I was in the city center, we had one bookstore which had in which uh, had imported paperbacks from the US or written written and um, and they had these ma- imported mass market paperbacks and they had a very good selection I think someone there was actually a science fiction reader because they had a very very good science fiction selection and um, they and I found a couple of the foundation I think I found the first uh, the original trilogy there and um, don't know if I found found foundation earth or Edge there. At any rate, I found all the foundation books and read through all of them all the way to Earth. Forward so came I have later. a good question though. Did you read um, uh, Forward the Foundation before you started into Foundation? Or did you? No, read I that didn't because it wasn't out yet. Ah, okay. It came out and it was, po- I think it was the last, I think it was posthumously published. So it would have come out in the early 90s. I read right. Forward is the only one I didn't read in sequence. I read from Prelude to all the way to Foundation and Earth. Didn't like didn't like Foundation and Earth very much. And then I went back and started with um, The End of Eternity, which was at the time I'd figured out there was a recommended, it was probably in one of the books, a recommended reading order. So I started with The End of Eternity. And then I went through the robot stories, uh, a novel through the Galactic Empire novels. So I cycled once around until I would have gotten to the point where Prelude would have started. And then when it came out, I read forward because it was uh, that was the only one I read out of sequence. And such I was a, absolutely yeah, yeah I was absolutely fascinated, of course, by these books and by the by the scope and the ideas. I'd read other science fiction novels before, but those were things like Star Wars tie-ins. And uh, I did read some Anne McCaffrey before I found Asimov. I'd like to write, but they didn't have this amazing scope of thousands of centuries and. Uh, essentially spanning plan and uh, trying to and trying to stop the dark ages which was very i was i was I remember in prelude there's a scene where um i think it's uh, it's demerzel tells uh, or whatever yes uh, i forgot what chester hoonin or whatever forget the name demerzel uses when he's talking to harry or he's talking to harry oh chatter hammond chatter hammond exactly yeah yeah, chatter I mean, He's a journalist. I mean, he's he's a chatter. He's yeah, literally chatting. Yeah. It makes sense. <laughs> a chatty, a chatty human. Yeah, yeah, a um, chatty human yeah. who's not a human at all. <laughs> and but uh, there's one point where he's talking to Harry, and uh, and they say like, look, there's a uh, there's a kind of a sign on the shop, and uh, the lights are just broken. No one is repairing them. That's a sign of decline. Okay, so I went looking for. So every kind, every every broken broken neon light or something in the shop really bothered me, and I told them, "Why are you replacing that?" Yeah, because it's difficult to climb up there. And mm-hmm. 
I think the real shock was shocker was when there was a one hour Photoshop at the at the central station. And uh, one day I came in, um, had I had some kind I don't know even know what sort of photos it was. I wanted my photos done done and said, okay, I'm coming. I left them there and I come back and they said you have to come back the next day. And they said, why? You're on one hour Photoshop. Oh no, we're not doing it anymore. Okay, so I was totally convinced the decline was real. <laughs> <laughs> real and uh, yeah, I told um, and because I became an evangelist for Asimov, I told every person. I met you have to read these books. This is the best book ever. You have to read these books. Most of them were not exactly happy to read them. So yeah, I just at any rate I discovered Asimov at exactly the right age. I think when you are when you are in your teens, uh, teens, it's um, it can be. This is one of those books that can be life changing when read at the at the right age. And uh, when you're a bit older, it's probably no longer has the same impact. Yeah, um, that's absolutely true. Um, I want to segue into where uh, Asimov's um, it, where Asimov fits into the golden age of sci-fi because I know you know so much about that era, and uh, I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts a little bit on some of the the best writers of that era that are similar in in some ways to to Asimov and and how they're different, but also if you can point out some of the the female uh, authors that maybe don't have as much prominence that you are aware of. I would love to to get your take on that. Yes, well, um, I mean, um, I've originally, when I was, when I started reading science, I just read whatever sounded interesting. A lot of them were really things from the golden age, from the 40s and 50s. I read, tried reading a few new wave things, but they didn't work for me, largely because it was not the right books. <laughs> I was trying. And um, also modern science fiction. Um, but um, where I realized that Asimov really um, you may be aware that there used to be something called the Retro Hugos, which were awarded either 50 or 75 years after a year where there had been no Hugo Awards, but a Worldcon. So mm -hmm. we basically had a bunch of, so basically all of them, everything from 1939 to 1952 was fair game. And uh, one year after, I think one or two years afterwards where there were no Hugos because they weren't fully established yet. And um, these Retro Hugos, um, and I was I became I started voting on the regular Hugos in 2014 when they had retro Hugos for it was have been 1939 and they had retro I always found the retro Hugos really exciting because wow so many books I would read or knew or loved laughed and laughed and um, and I was always a bit frustrated by the by the results because it was always that people were obviously voting for the famous name for the big name authors. But for mm -hmm. often very weak early stories. I mean, um, the first Asimov story, Marooned by of Marooned of Wester, is really isn't worse. Isn't hmm. worse? It's not very good. Sorry, Asimov. Moff. <laughs> and um, there was, I think, a really early, very very early Arthur C. Clarke story, which was not, which was pretty terrible, and so on. And um, I was always obviously voting for the big names. So I thought, okay, let's um, let's just start reviewing uh, reviewing for the any kind of um, golden age, age, any kind of stories from the, those years you can we can find, so people can make a more informed decision. Which sort of well didn't quite work out. The retro after um, I really I wanted to do the project for nineteen for the nineteen forty four retro Hugos for stories from nineteen forty three, but um, I got sick at the um, in the nomination period, caught the flu, so I didn't really get it get to do it as much as I wanted to. So I did it the next year, and yeah. Afterwards, there were never any retro Hugos again. 
again. So yeah, that's how, even though I made some made a dent, I noticed that very obscure stories I'd recommend. But one thing is if you read, if you read a lot of, there were three Asimov stories, of course, who were um, the big and the little or the merchant princess or the Hover Mallow stories, the traders or all the ones uh, as cone stories, the trade or the wet, the wet is the other name. And uh, one of the Powell and Donovan stories who were a little bit that year. And one thing is, if you read those stories in the context of other stories from the era, you notice that a lot of similar, similar ideas, themes, tropes pop up. You have robots, of course, and how to make the robots, robots work. <clears throat> you have early space. Uh, most of the golden age science fiction isn't actually as expensive as foundation is because it mostly sticks to the solar system. And they have a very clear idea of what the solar system is like, which is completely wrong. We later yeah. found out, but it's always, I've called it the, the, the jungles, of, the jungles of Venus. Uh, yes, the jungles of Venus, the deserts of Mars. And uh, <laughs> Pluto is not only still a planet, it's, uh, it's uh, sort of habitable. Um, the tidally locked, this is one I love, the tidally locked Mercury. Mercury. We had a tidally right. locked movie uh, locked. Um, there is a tidally locked planet in uh, mentioned in the mule. I, I'm and, actually uh, old enough to remember when that was the uh, accepted knowledge was that Mercury was tidally locked when I first learned mm -hmm. the solar system, and I thought that was so cool. And then later, what? It's not. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I think we're still we still have tidally there still are tidally locked planets in pop culture or in science fiction even today. Simply because the idea is so cool that uh, people were just, okay, I'm not giving up on that. Just as we still yeah. have the deserts of, I mean, Dune is uh, practically um, an updated take on the deserts of Mars. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, there were no deserts on Mars, at least not the way we hoped they would be. Right. No canals. Yes, and no canals. And anyway, yeah, yeah if, I mean, if you like the, the Pulpia, if you like the old Mars and old... Uh, and old Venus, then Lee Brackett is probably the, he's one of the best, best, not just one of the best women authors, but one of the best authors of the golden age. Age, he's been a little forgotten, gotten and but Was she the one they called the queen of the space operas? Yeah, she was called the queen of the space opera. Okay. And um, she's, she was very, her, she wrote a lot of stories in the, she started, I think, and she debuted around the same time as Asimov, so she was a bit older than he was, but he was very, very young, of course. And uh, she was, uh, and hers were more, well, more, more, a lot more adventure-oriented, uh, and because uh, we know that uh, <laughs> that foundation is quite, it's, it's very philosophical, but it's quite talky, especially the very early stories. Mm. And um, she's more adventure-oriented. Also, she has a quite strong, it's quite strongly political, especially the early stories, because her heroes are often, her heroes are the space outlaws, the space rogue. rogue. So, which is, of course, she did not develop that archetype that was C.L. Moore, who came up with the first space rogue, a guy called Northwest Smith, whose adventures appeared in, appeared in um, Weird Tales starting in 1934. For, and um, those, so, yes, the TV series is trying to turn Hobo Mallow into this kind of space outlaw, space rogue character, which he really mm -hmm. isn't in the book. Books. Right. Hobo right. Mallow yeah, is but... a Hobo Mallow's a space capitalist. He's not really a space outlaw. Yes, exactly. And but I, I I saw them as munging together her Hobo Mallow and and uh, Lemore Ponyets. And Ponyets is definitely yes, more of a is more space of a... rogue. Yes, Lemore Ponyets is also. I mean, Asimov tried to write this time this type of character several times. 
Lima Ponget and Hobo Mello are very similar characters. Mm-hmm. Characters. Hobo Mello is the guy who actually, well, who becomes rich and fair and wealthy. Yeah. Wealthy. Ponget never does. Does, but yeah. they're both um, outsiders who work for the foundation but were, are not fully accepted. And this is interestingly because mm-hmm. I'm starting to think that maybe Asimov, who of course read all the other stories, he, he read those, those magazines, he knew those stories, even if he, Asimov published mostly in Astounding, which was considered a serious science fiction magazine, which had serious covers with, with very phallic rockets and so on, whereas the other ones had, had scantily clad women being groped by bug eyed monsters. Usually, yeah. whatever was on the covers never happened in the book, but who cares? And some of the other magazines are actually quite, quite good. Particularly Planet Stories has a lot of good stories, actually. Actually, not just really brackets. They have early stories by Ray Bradbury and so on. So they're pretty good. I, I have a favor to ask you for myself and for my listeners. Um, if you could just give me, like, offline uh, after this, a list of your your favorite top 10 from the golden age yeah i can do so i would i would love to do that and i would love to take that as a just a project to go back and and read some of those stories Mm -hmm. uh because you know truthfully i've read i've read my asimov clark and heinlein uh a few other uh, authors but i have not really delved deeply into that era and and would love to most people have read clark asimov heinlein as a three big three that everybody has read and actually, yeah. Clark is Clark. Actually, only starts getting really good, good a bit. Well, he starts off, but he's a bit, a bit later, later than he did write during the so-called golden age, but uh, and also in the forties. But uh, but he only starts. He was also a bit younger than the others, but he only starts getting really good later. For the nineteen forties, you have people like um, like Clifford D. Simak, Fritz Leiber, um, Henry Kuttner, C. L. Moore. Lee Brackett, Margaret Sinclair, another woman who's really, really under, woman writer who's very underrated and actually continued living and writing well into the 90s, even into the 1980s. So she lived a long time. Like, and yeah, lots of, I mean, there's a lot of good stories to discover. And also, you realize that, that things that showed up in Asimov stories, like, for example, the tra- these space traders who are. Um, outsiders operating on the edge of legality they show up in other stories or the powell and donovan stories mike donovan mm-hmm. the irish the irish stereotype the irish stereotypes in other stories and uh, took me a while after the third i was like okay why am i getting three kind of offensive irish stereotypes in in fairly short yes in fairly short succession yes because this was the irish was still discriminated against at the time and this yeah. was their, this was their way of showing diversity yeah this was their I, way of, just... they were talking about diversity like we were today but the back back at the time it was okay but the irish people can go into space too and they can build robots too right and, uh, uh i don't know if you uh, uh listened to a couple episodes back on selden crisis i read reason uh, mm-hmm. the apollo and donovan story and it was really interesting uh, seeing how much stereotype there was of um, Irish stereotype in, in Donovan. And I felt uh, I almost didn't publish that that episode because I did such a bad version of an Irish accent. <laughs> and I just I just didn't want to uh, you know, put in the work necessary to do a proper Irish accent. But uh, what one thing that I found fascinating in that story was it was written in, uh, I believe, 1942. And yes, it was one of the, the uh, earlier ones. The Powell yeah, stories are fairly early. I think there's, there's was really, already the last one. 
<laughs> there's a really interesting bit right at the end where you know after everything is resolved after you know it's everything's kind of it's kind of the epilogue and the new tech comes to the station and he's a german you know, he's of german descent he's like molar something molar and it obviously uh i guess it's uh it's powell um who hates him instantly and like it tries to make his life miserable he and i i i just thought you know they're really being nasty to this german guy and and then i <laughs> then i thought about it afterwards and i thought oh it's 42 of course you know that's that was the trope i mean that was the the mindset of everyone so yeah you know, and i mean asimov sense. was jewish so yes he said yeah, he was working yeah. uh, was in, it's a navy yard at the time because it was terribly terrified of being drafted because he figured that if he if he ever became a prisoner of war he they wouldn't they wouldn't bother locking him up anywhere they would just kill him which sadly is probably what would have happened i mean yeah. no they didn't just kill the but i uh, but um i don't think a huge prisoner of war would have fared very well yeah well so yeah right. it was kind of but i mean Diversity is something we talk about a lot these days, but there are obviously attempts at diversity in those early stories. Even going further back, you have um, you have I think Landsman has a has a the Landsman story. There's a German, the first one, Galactic Patrol. There's a German general or something who feels very much like a World War One stereotype. So going back even further, those are from the late thirties. And as so, we get later into science fiction, there's a lot of Russian presence in space yes of course yeah. um, i think we don't get so many russian or russian characters in these early times simply because um no one was expecting that the soviet union would get into space before the u.s did right especially not by 19 the 1940s 40s mm -hmm. uh, the german did the germans did look i mean okay the germans were pretty good bet but um only that uh, only that hitler was on was more interested in, in shooting rockets at London then into space, into space, but the, but the Soviet Union did not look like a good bet at the time. So I guess that's why you don't see, but you do see some. Another thing is you actually see people of color quite um, in the in the golden age. For example, Hober Mello is one of the very few characters who gets a bit of a, Asimov doesn't do physical descriptions. Right, right. Uh, Mike Donovan is red haired. That's mm -hmm. why we enter. I always assume Gregory Powell was black, but he actually isn't. He's his skin color is never mentioned in the stories. I had somehow just um, assumed he was black because I associated the name Gregory with black people with black people at the time, based on a single couple of actors or something, something. Mm. So um, so I just thought that um, so I just assumed someone named Gregory would be black, but he's not. He's not. He's not black actually. So he's just black in my mind. But uh, yeah. Mike Donovan is actually right-handed, and Hober Mellow gets a bit of description that he's he has brown skin, which of course can mean anything from a strong tan to actually a person of color, and of course he's mm -hmm. other. He's um he's from Smyrna, so he's from the Four Kingdoms. He's not a real foundationer, which everybody tells him all through the stories. <laughs> so yeah. he's always like, "You're not even really one for, one of us." Mm -hmm. Right. He dresses differently, mm -hmm. and. Uh, Especially a lot of these outlaw space outlaw characters, the way what they did to what they made him in the TV series, so he's not really that in the books. A lot of these space outlaw characters are well, they're all outsiders, and a lot of them are them are not white. The most 
one of the most famous ones is Eric Lund Stark, who was who was a character Lee Brackett created, who's a kind of Tarzan character who grows up in the Twilight Belt of Mercury. He's an abandoned child, by, child for, of, well, not an abandoned child. His parents are, are minors and they die and uh, some natives from Mercury take him in, take him in and raise him. And then he's, uh, he's discovered and then some other evil capital, space capitalists come in and kill all the natives and, and keep him as a kind of circus attraction. And then he's rescued by a kindly, kindly um, space police officer and goes on to have, have adventures as an adult. And he is black. He's described as a black man. Okay, they come like, oh, but he's black because of the, the solar rays from Mercury. Yeah, okay, he's black because of the solar rays. No, he's just a black man, but <laughs> that's uh, so they, that was a way of sneaking in characters of color when this was uh, not always that easy. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, the very first regarding... one, Northwest Smith, is also described as a brown-skinned man, so he's also, at any rate, we, we, the, the, you can, of course, we have illustrations, but the illustrators usually have, uh, usually don't care what the characters look yeah, like yeah. In, the, in the stories. Right. And there's so much latitude, especially with, with Asimov characters, since there's so little description, they can look Asimov very different characters from can cover look to cover. Yeah. However you I, want them to I look. wanted to bring, get back to the space rogue for a minute because, and first I wanted to, to inform my listeners that you write incredibly excellent uh reviews for these episodes of the foundation tv show i've been reading everyone and one yeah, of the next one most coming tonight ones... hopefully oh great um the the one um that i'm thinking about is uh the one where they introduced Tober mallow uh in the show and you uh, ref you talked about the space rogue and its its history and in, in the golden age um and and i'd urge any listener to to read those reviews because there's so many like gems like that where you really get into like the depth of things that yeah. uh, I, I that's one of the the best things about reading your your reviews He's, well the space rogue is really most most characters in the um, golden age they were more they were fairly straight laced laced heroic characters so they were more more like, well, Captain Future, if you've ever read the stories or watched the anime, he's a very typical Golden Age character, Edmund Hamilton's character, who's yeah. another really good writer of the, he actually started before the Golden Age and wrote well into the, and wrote, and wrote well into the 1960s and I think even early 70s. So, well, yeah. I was I was thinking about how the space rogue is really not, is, is really an extension of the the historical rogue kind of figure that goes back, the heroic rogue that goes back much farther into yeah. like Robin Hood and like even in myth, you know, that the, the yeah, trickster he, kind of yeah, It characters. is a kind of Robin, a lot of these characters are not so much in, in the astounding astounding and, and in stories by people like Asimov. Like I said, Hobo Mello is obviously discriminated against, but he's, he's a space capitalist. He's a guy who's, he's the underdog, the, the immigrant who doesn't belong and to make good. Okay, it's not really surprising that Asimov, who was um, who was a Russian Jewish immigrant in New York City, would be would create such a character. Just as right. Selva Harden, Selva Harden is the first generation to grow up in a new place, place and uh, deal with conflict with the um, values of his his immigrant of the, the first of the first generation immigrant who want to stick to their culture or whatever brought them there. In, terms of, in this case, it's an encyclopedia, where, whereas Salva Hardin is just, okay, I want to live here, live here, I want my homeland to be safe, safe, I want to 
I want to want the people to just live here, make money and so on. So, yeah, I mean, those stories are clearly linked to the immigrant experience. To Asimov's experience. Of right. Asimov, yes. And yeah. <laughs> it's no wonder. But um, a lot of the other space rocks, the ones particularly by Lee Brackets, is but and, and a lot of the other stories written in places by um, in places that appeared in places like Planet Stories by authors like Frederick Pohl or even mainly Wade Wellman, who's more known as a horror author these days. But he did write a bit of science fiction. Those characters are often they are from the margins of society, but there's often a really there's often a kind of social social let's just say social justice warrior idea. So there's an oppressive system they're fighting against. Howard Mello mm -hmm. isn't really fighting against an oppressive system; he just basically takes it over. Yeah, <laughs> he takes over the foundation and and uh, turns it into something something even more different than what it originally was. There's, I, I always find there's a commonality in Asimov's protagonists in that they are kind of, they were always like the smartest guy in the room and very much like Asimov himself in a lot of ways uh, that are just a little bit flavored in different, in different ways. Uh, but it's always essentially Asimov. Speaking yeah, he, as, wrote, yeah. <laughs> he wrote what we would call Mary Sue's today, only uh, he was a man. And I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it makes sense. It makes sense. He's a, Asimov was a very, very intelligent person, probably usually more intelligent than the people around him. He'd never really fit in, in because of yes, being a first, well, no, second generation would be so, but he actually still was born. He was born in what is today Russia and was yeah. in the Soviet Union. So he's actually, he was an, he was an immigrant trying to into from a marginalized groups because Jewish immigrants were probably more were more discriminated against than the Irish and even discriminated against the Irish. So, and we almost so he had a lot of of issues to overcome. He was very yeah. smart, and that's exactly what his protagonists are too. We almost lost him as an infant uh, because there was a plague in his village that wiped out, I think, like uh, half of the children his age yeah it was uh, I mean, he, <laughs> it was 1920 or winter yeah. 1920 1919 19 might still have been the spanish flu actually and, and i think that's why he um didn't uh why it's still ambiguous where when his actual birthday is mm -hmm. and it was it was set as january also 1st, of course um they um they changed the the the, the russia the Former Russian Empire only changed to the Gregorian calendar during the after the, the after the October Revolution, which is why they celebrated the October Revolution anniversary in November. Remember, yeah. because they they lost the because um, all through the Russian all through the imperial days they had still had the older calendar, so there was a calendar switch around the time. So of yeah. course, it kind of makes sense that uh, no one would that he wouldn't know when he was born. Or no one would quite would know quite for sure. Well, my Russian-born wife uh, and I, and uh, we have a, a circle of Russian friends uh, and Russian and Ukrainian friends uh, in this uh, where we live, uh, and we celebrate the uh, the old New Year's Eve every year. Uh, there's a big party. Um, yeah, like that's January uh, Genesis, 13th. isn't it? January thirteenth. Ah, thirteenth. Yes. Yeah, mm. January sixth is yes, Christmas. Uh, my Russian neighbors have switched to January sixth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's uh, they, they they there's a long period of, of partying. You know, we we think we party for a long time here from Thanksgiving to New Year's, but they go another two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's uh, but so, but yes, I mean it. Um, I mean, 
you can't really tell, really see his his life uh, life. I think most authors have their life somewhat reflected in the story. But with with Asimov, I think it's if you think about it, it's uh, really quite obvious. It's very very intelligent characters who are somewhat outsiders and have to work against the system, which um, doesn't want to listen to them, doesn't believe in them. And somehow wanna, they all triumph at the end. Yeah, I, I want to turn things to one of my uh, my pet projects, my one of my pet uh, things that I'm really interested in. This gets back into deep into foundation. Um, in in writing this book, which I'm not even sure Asimov realized how much of it he was going to write when he started. He only wrote a short story. Uh, and I think it's I, a novel by modern standards. There, <laughs> there's another anecdote on your blog that I found fascinating was that he wrote the um, the first story was not the Psychohistorians. It was called Foundation and yeah. now it's called the Nowadays Encyclopedists. Nowadays it's um, the Encyclopedists. Yeah. And and he wrote the um, the cliffhanger at the end, specifically to get uh, John Campbell to accept a sequel to it. Yeah, he wanted uh, which, to he wanted to sell a second story, and uh, which, which also, strikes me as like it's amazing that he didn't even realize he was going to be able to get two stories out, uh, short stories yeah. out, and it became this massive thousand year uh, project. I mean, uh, if you read to the end of the encyclopedists of just foundation, as, as it was called then, it's uh, it's basically, uh, it literally ends with, oh, I know what the solution is. And then it just ends. And of course you need a second story. Why? Why? What is the solution? I want to know. <laughs> uh, yeah, that took some chutzpah, really, to, to say, you know, I'm not even going to tell you how this ends, John. Uh, you give me another story and I'll, you will find out how it ends. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, because that. But he uh, was very smart. Also, yeah, um, we should know astounding stories, which is where the foundation stories, all of the original ones, appeared. Nowadays, mm -hmm. still around. It's now analog. Was the highest paying science fiction magazine at the time. Time. So yeah. um, I think he paid. To, I think he paid two cents a word. The others paid one cent a word or less. So Asimov did not lack in confidence. He was. Yeah, he uh, had to. Also, you have to remember how very, very young he was when he wrote those stories. Yeah. Wasn't his yeah, early 20? He was not much older than I was when I first read them. Yeah, yeah. So, and a lot of people read them just a few years younger than, than when he read them. Um, I, so what I wanted to talk about a little bit is when you write a story that covers a thousand years and covers the whole stretch of the galaxy, uh, like Foundation, uh, you obviously have to pick and choose which parts you're going to write about where where the what stories you're going to write and and he he has you know the first 30 years or the end of the first 30 years in in the first story the end of like another uh, 60 years or so in the second and then you know it, it various uh jumps of a few decades and then later we get like a jump of like more like 100 years or, or longer and uh, but what's what's really strikes me especially when when i reread re it for the podcast was these little cryptic references to side stories that were never developed um it, like there there's the uh you know when in the merchant princes when uh, there's a couple in the Merchant Princes that just the, there's Lycia of Corel, the Comdora, um, who's kind of we a. We sadly star. did not get to see in the series. We got the Comdora yeah. and he was great, but we did. I would have loved to see. I Lycia. know. I would love to see Lycia too. Um, <laughs> but it, what really it was fascinating to me about Lycia was her backstory that was and why she was so uh, 
hateful of her husband all the time and you know constant arguing was that she found she considered himself herself a a, a, a descendant of, of wealth and and power she was someone from the empire her her it was never specified who but her father was some very high-ranking official in the court in the imperial court and I always like that makes me wonder who was it? You know, what who did she who was her father? And I, I like could her father have been this viceroy that you know on Suena or or I somebody think I like that? I assumed it was a viceroy of Suena, but um, it's never really spelled out. It's just yeah, was um that she was an um that she was basically married off in a political marriage to a guy she hated uh, hated by an influential imperial. Yeah, I'm, I'm to a curious. Place which was below, which was way below her standards. I want to know more about what created that that marriage and like what was the back and background of that marriage and how that you know what that resolved and all that stuff. But then another one in there is that fascinating story by Onam Barr, mm -hmm. um, in where he he talks about the revolt of Suena and having six sons and a daughter, and only one of the sons survived. He's not sure about the daughter. And you never hear, hear another word about the daughter. And of course, uh, the, the TV series manages to kill the surviving son off in a single episode. Uh, yes, uh, that bothered me. I, I wanted it because, me, really, because it was like, hey, we still need him. Yeah, so could have made him own him bar who could have, uh, yeah, who could have died was... at that point and kept Dukem around. Yeah, so, exactly, exactly. The um, Lord of Savannah is something I really wanted to see and which would have been a great thing to show in the TV series because it would have been very cinematic. There's a great revolt world, and basically um, the rebellious viceroy tries to become emperor, his own people overthrow him and, and then get uh, get nuked by the empire for their troubles. That's an amazing to me, that, the, to me the, the revolt of the Suena is a is a whole missing novel. It, it, there's so much there. And I, I love um, uh, that the daughter disappears and you don't know anything about her. But then later we get in the general, we get um, uh, Dusan Barr's story where he strongly implies that he killed the viceroy. Uh, but I kind of wonder, you know, in my mind, I, I want the daughter to have killed the viceroy and uh, um, and do some bar to have like protected her honor somewhere and claimed to have done it himself or something like that and just that seems like such a great side story that would be a great part of it and i wish i could write well enough to write that story <laughs> and of course you would well i mean you could always post it on uh, fan fiction or on yeah. or something Otherwise, Some, you would have someday. to have to persuade Robin Asimov to give you the license. I, mean, I know, Robin, I know. Mrs. As Ms. Asimov, if you are listening, listening, I would be very happy to write some missing foundation stories for you. <laughs> <laughs> Love your father's books. <laughs> yeah, we got to get Robin Asimov to listen. Yeah. Um, the, another one is uh, another cryptic comment is in the Mule. Um, there's a couple of really interesting cryptic comments, but. Um, First, uh, Beta's descent is uh, traced to Hober Mallow. I, that's fascinating. Because I want to know the whole how thing, that happened. Isn't, um, there is also a Hober Mallow descendant in uh, earlier in the dead head. Yeah, there is. I forgot the, the, who's the, the Senate, big, big boss of the Senate. Senate. Yeah. I went back and looked him up. Senate Forel. Yeah, and I he's, can. He's, uh, he's, he claims to be a son but yeah. of uh, the they son of Hober Mallow, but he... Um, it, it, it's uh, rumored that it's an illegitimate son. Of course, um, right. Hobo Mallow is a, is an interesting thing about Hobo Mallow is that 
the, that the most intimate, he mentions a mistress or something like, like, okay, this is no more your, he tells this, uh, this um, foundation, what's his name? No, Lorraine Sutt, Lorraine Sutt, who's actually in the TV series. He tells Lorraine Sutt, well, that, that's no more business than the name of my current mistress. So it's implied Hobo Mallow has a lot of, as the TV show puts it, bad mates. But the most intimate scene, and it just totally went over my head when I was uh, when I first read those stories. I realized that when I reread them, I felt like, oh my god, how did he get away with that? Because the, the most intimate scene we see Hobo Mallow in is with a man. Yeah. He's with a he's with a male friend, and he's yeah. nude. He's sunbathing in the nude in some kind of uh, of um, glass in solarium, and he's nude. He's and uh, they are smoking cigars while sunbathing and talking about cell crises, like you do. I mean, yeah. it's a sex position. And this is what exactly. scene I really want to see in the TV show. They are not afraid of showing <laughs> sex scenes, so give us. And yeah. okay, the TV show they used the gender neutral term. They said, okay, Hobo Mallow sleeps around a lot. They used the gender-neutral term "badmates," which could be yeah. both men and women. So he probably was bisexual. And of course, it's also possible that lots of people just claim to be descended from Howard Mallow because he's one of the great heroes of the Foundation. Right. And Salva probably, Harden probably wasn't such a good. And he was known to have slept around a lot. So who knows if they... Uh, there was no... They don't didn't have... <laughs> and they had no way of really proving paternity in the 1940s beyond some, some fairly basic blood tests. Yeah. Blood tests. So uh, it's quite possible that, uh, I mean, uh, with Senate Forrell, they actually assume he's lying. And Beta might just probably repeating some kind of family legend as of, you are this, uh, we are descended from Hobo Mallow. <laughs> yeah. And so Arcadio Darrell would, of course, then be descended from Hobo Mallow too. My favorite uh, cryptic comment is very similar, or comes soon after that, and it's by Randu. Um, Torell's uncle, and he's he he mentions Lathan Deaver's death in the slave mines with uh, with Torin's great grandfather. So uh, I I'm envisioning this like completely untold story about Lathan Deaver's and and uh, Torell's great grandfather. This buddy story where they you know they decide they've had it with the oppression and and mistreatment by the yeah, the the rising uh, Indber clan, and they're they're going to like revolt and do their thing, and they get busted, and they get sent to the slave mine. Of course, but we uh, never hear anything more about it. Yeah, it's it's also it's almost it's such a blink and you miss it moment that he's Lasem Divas is 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 the foundation on the foundation side. He's the one of the main protagonists of the previous story. Story he mm -hmm. and Duke Bar and Lasem Divas. Uh, to basically help to take down the empire and they take down Belrios, who really yeah. doesn't really deserve anything of what he gets. So he's just a guy doing his job, but he's a little too good at it. At yeah. it, but um, there's the people who save the foundation and take down Belrios, and yes, that's the thanks. And, and in the that's one of my favorite uh, stories in Foundation is that that dialogue between. Do some bar, I call him do some, you call him do come, who knows? Uh, but do, um, do like some I bar. said, I learned Latin and uh, yeah. in Latin it would be do come, so okay, he's do come from not from now on, anyway. Do come bar and uh, and and uh, Bel Rios, mm -hmm. um, talking together about that. Sorry, um, talk, talking about um, the uh, which way the what's going to happen and Dukumbar is convinced that 
there is nothing that Belrios can do to affect the future, that it is predestined to be uh, the, the foundation will prevail. And Ducumbar, or Belrios is just like shocked at this and, and repelled at this idea because he sees himself as an influencer of the, of the future and that the future is not predetermined yeah. and it's Belrios a wonderful thinks way he's of playing one of the out great men of history yeah it's so <laughs> it's such really, a great way of playing exactly. out that, he's a great he's a great man who fails yeah yeah exactly and it's uh that that is um uh, i really hope that they find some way of getting that you know it can't be duke and bar obviously but maybe that conversation will will come up at some point in some way and i was it, really it disappointed to... that they killed off dukembar so very quickly and barely barely gave him just he just uh, gave his brief presentation and then it's like oops we have a lynch mob at the door door i will kill yeah. myself now which is uh, what was really disappointing yeah because yeah. they're missing a great they, they are both um, removing a good character and uh, which who's still needed and who's very and also removing some really great because i mean most of the really really Good parts of foundation are actually dialogues that people talking. Because, yep. um, because a lot most of the action takes off off stage, including some really fascinating things such as uh, the revolt on Sivana, whatever happened to Lathem Diva's end in the slave mines, uh, mines, the entire fall of the empire, empire, the vanishing ships in the in the the merchant princes and so on. All the interesting stuff happens. All the action stuff happens off stage so you have yeah. plenty of cinematic action you could introduce in the tv series only let's say do something completely different uh, right and i want to talk about the tv series a little bit not not to get too deep into it but there i have a theory um uh, from listening to and listening to goyer a lot on his podcasts and reading his amas and things and what my theory is that it, from what what goyer said is that when he pitched this to Apple, um, that they rejected the idea of doing an anthology. That it basically rejected, said, we can't do a, a story in which there are no characters that continue from season to season. And it, Goyer basically, he says, there was not an option to do it, uh, you know, the way it's done by Asimov. Uh, that the only way that they would pick it up and give him the money to do this story is to find a way to make characters continue through. Right. And so, you know, one of the most ingenious ways to do that, and I think is totally a great idea is to take an untold story, which is the story of the Imperial court of the Cle of Cleon and branch it off into these clones into the which allows I mean, those three actors to continue i love the cleons they're great yeah right the so that's an a lot of fun to watch that's an obvious one and maybe maybe you might say he should have pitched it as that is the recurring part and the rest of the characters are anthologized you know that they they live normal lifetimes but he decided to go further and have harry selden be an active um an active character throughout the story rather than just a recorded character and to be you know now we see that hari has there's multiple haris and we don't know why one's in a human body and um you know there's all this stuff and then we have um uh, gail gail um uh, 
Dornick, who originally was pretty much a non-character. She was like just the narration of the psychohistorians. And yeah, they've turned, they've decided to explore her backstory, which I think is fine. Uh, and uh, I think that you can, you can almost justify the idea of having her continue through the story because she's also referenced as Hari Seldon's biographer. So if you're going to have Hari Seldon continue through the story, you almost need her biographer to continue through the story, right? His biographer to continue through the story. So that kind of justifies uh, Gail to some degree as one of these recurring characters. And then you have Salvor Hardin, which I have a really hard time. Yeah, uh, Salvor is a great character. I mean, uh, I wish yeah. the, I liked I like the actress uh, actress Lee Harvey does a good job, but I wish um, Selva in the TV series was more like Selva because um, Selva in the TV series is basically the actual well, oh I I grab a rifle and patrol the perimeter again but, but, and but, but, that's not what who Selva Harden is Selva Harden is basically a guy who doesn't like violence avoids violence yeah, yeah. and wins by and wins because he's the smartest guy in the room, which is the let's, foundation way. Let's put, let's put Salver Hardin to the side for the moment and just say, okay, he made this pitch to Apple that I'm going to have these recurring characters. Do you, do you like it now? And they said, yeah, we're going to give you a ton of money for this. I, I think at that point, when that was the pitch, um, and those characters were established as recurring characters, the rest of it is inevitable that you're going to have lots of radical changes, that you can't expect the story to, to stick to Asimov's foundation very closely at all, because there's so many, so many things are different. Yeah. And as a result, you know, the, he's paying lip service and you know, bringing in quotes and putting them in the, in the mouths of the wrong people and things like that to make it kind of fit together. But he's telling a new story, you know, that that's completely different. And I kind of feel like, um, this is why I, I raised this point before this season started with you and uh, our friend Paul Levinson, um, that you kind of have to just uh, see it as a new story. And, you know, if you do see it as a new story, it's it's interesting and it's got a, a lot of different things that, that are that are cool about it. And, and it has, you know, resonance with some of foundation principles. Uh, but it's it's obviously off the rails, and and I see it as off the rails in an entertaining way, and you know it doesn't bother me anymore. And that's I found the first season hard to watch because I couldn't let go of the books, I and I was really you know feeling this tension between the books and what they were doing, and the first then season, just I think was even more off the rails because um they yeah. except for there's a conflict with the neighbor with the aggressive neighbors neighbors and they didn't even spend all that much time on the conflict with the aggressive neighbors, neighbors right. I, uh, there was pretty much nothing okay there's a big battleship but there was pretty much nothing of the first two stories and especially and a few characters like uh like louis perrin and um and uh, lord darwin and so on but there was almost nothing of the first two stories even though um though okay the first one is really a little it's a little slow and a little dull but uh, the second one actually has plenty of action and so on it would have made it would have been it would have worked mm -hmm. i i this season i i think it i don't know if it's just a better season or it's it's also my my different attitude in watching it and just letting go of the books but I've, i'm enjoying it so much more and i feel much more like in the story and and like accepting it uh, yeah. and, you know, I'm not, I'm not continually fighting back. 
Um, yeah. A friend of mine, Juan San Miguel, um, Claire says that maybe it's because um, Lane Espenson, who's of course a veteran TV writer and also a science fiction writer. She, I forget what her, she used, a, she used a pen name to write science fiction. And she's a veteran TV writer, and a very good one. So, so and she wrote a lot of the episodes. Because the thing what? is, of course, there are a lot of David Goyer or Joel Friedman, is his name Josh Friedman, Friedman, um, Jane Aspenson, Eric Carrasco, those people, people can write, they're good writers. They can write, I've seen um, them often, a lot of them are veteran TV writers, they've written some very, very good stuff, so they can write. And I'm pretty sure they have read Foundation, so it makes sense that uh, it's um, that it's uh, producers, uh, that it's a higher up than Netflix, who's not, sorry, Apple. <laughs> Apple. Well, here, higher up Apple said like, oh no, we can't do this. The audience won't accept it, yeah. even though I mean, my, the audience uh, accepts anthology. Uh, here's here's my hope. My great hope is I want the the series to succeed um, because I want um, it to become like a franchise that is is successful and and becomes kind of a um, a I thing mean, people consider. I want to see the mule for real. <laughs> right, right. I want but, to also want to see the second foundation for real. I want to see Baby yeah, yeah. Darrell. Oh, I want there's... to see Arkady Darrell. <laughs> So, so much great stuff to come. But the, the, um, my point is if it succeeds and becomes like viral, like big and, and, you know, and accepted as a, a valuable franchise, right. Then you're going to get reboots and spinoffs and all, all those kind of things. And perhaps one of the reboots could be the original foundation. You know, somebody could, could decide, okay, I'm going to tell this story the way Asimov told it. The, and we're going to go back to the true story of Foundation, and we're going to really stage it well as like, like a theater piece, because that's so, so much of it is like, is people talking, you know, and, and have- You could easily maybe, um, adapt, uh, especially the very early stories. Stories You could easily yeah. adapt them into, I mean, um, I mean, the very first one, the encyclopedist, is basically people talking in in uh, in conference rooms. Most of it, yeah. Of yeah. it, there's a bit. The second one has a bit more action. Action. Um, the the vet is again. The vet is also. It's almost a chamber play. It's very very. Um, it's it's a very very limited limited location, and um, and at least half of uh, of the Merchant Princess is a courtroom drama. Yeah, which we may I, still I think... get to see, of course, because. Uh, they're currently messing up the, everything from the wedge uh, all the way very well into the well into the second foundation. Dation. So yeah. <laughs> it's currently a bit of a mess because they they spend too much much time on the not first two stories in the in the first season and now they're suddenly messing several stories together. Have <laughs> you the, have you the into... general and the merchant princess? Have you studied uh, Greek tragedy at all? Um, uh, like some of the great uh, Sophocles? Mm, yes, sort of. I mean, you get. Um... I just, I haven't, I can't say I'm a great scholar of it, but I, I've rediscovered a lot of that stuff through a podcast called His, uh, Literature and History. I really love. And he, he has uh, several great um, episodes on Greek tragedy. And it, it, what he makes the point that in, in Greek tragedy, all the violence and crazy stuff the, the the a lot of the really dramatic moments happen off off stage 
Um, because and, they couldn't put it on stage. Right. Um, and, and so it's structured that way to be to to really put the drama into the dialogue. And, and so I think in in that sense, uh, Asimov's approach is, uh, you know, a, kind of a throwback to that really serious, uh, tragic kind of the theater. Of course, uh, he were... probably he may well have been familiar with the Greek tragedies. I mean, yeah, uh, I'm sure he was. He was. He very yeah. likely was. He was a very, very into, very highly educated man. Man, he or loved much of himself educated, and yeah, also loved... people in the 1940s were a lot more familiar with the literature of the past, including the ancient past, yeah. than we are today. Today, yeah. I mean, the Golden Age is Golden Age science fiction is full of um, allusions and also fantasy to. Uh, to writers um, with or cases where I'm glad that I have the internet because I've never heard of, of uh, these people in many cases, <laughs> in many yeah. cases. And um, I consider myself fairly well read and educated, but um, a lot of differences. I mean, um, also it's kind of the famous story that foundation was uh, based on the decline and fall of the Roman empire by, I've mm -hmm. forgotten the name of the author now, sorry. <laughs> Gibbon, Gibbon. Yeah, Gibbon, he's very, yes. And um, and this is that it was based on that and is fairly loosely tracks the fall of the Roman Empire, except that there's something. I mean, nowadays we know that the whole thing about the Dark Ages was uh, wasn't like that. That the mm -hmm. Dark Ages are um, Victorian prejudices. This the time between the Roman Empire and the High Middle Ages wasn't Dark Ages, but this was still the accepted belief uh, at Asimov's time, even at my time. Like I said, mm -hmm. I learned Latin in school and. Um, so of course I was familiar with the Roman Empire, and also if you learn Latin, you st I was also very pro-Roman, largely very pro-Roman. Roman as in okay, Rome was good, Rome had civilization, and then all this Christian stuff came in and came in, and uh, we had a throwback. So yeah, that was also something which resonated with me at the at the time. I mean, I probably carried around by around my um, foundation paperbacks in Latin class to read them during the break or something. <laughs> something so naughty, was, naughty. it was it really resonated with me we know it's it's not right we know it's wrong wrong and it doesn't fit but and of course um, this is one i'm actually mentioned in the essay in my in in foundation and philosophy is um a very very different story by um elsbrack de camp who nowadays is mostly known as the guy who took uh, who took all the unpublished conan stories stories and unfinished Conan stories and finished them and wrote some new ones and wasn't very good but he was a very good writer of was also a very educated guy was and um, was a very good writer of historical science fiction and mythological fantasy and so on itself and he wrote a story called less darkness fall which was published in unknown which is a which was a fantasy oriented sister magazine of astounding science fiction which sadly did not last very long in 1939, where a guy in the modern in the modern age is uh, sucked back in time, he's I think he's an archaeologist or something visiting Pompeii. He's visiting Italy and is sucked back in in time into the late Roman Empire, and he knows that the Roman Empire is going to fall. He knows that there will be long dark age, and he has all the foreknowledge. I mean, this sounds really familiar, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. He has all the foreknowledge of what will happen, and he also has this knowledge of his really advanced. He also has this really advanced knowledge of uh, of technology. So he well starts. So he decides, okay, I'm going to prevent the false empire. Uh, empire and uh, okay, these Christian people. Okay, we will try to keep them down. They're 
they are just um, they are just hindering everything, everything, and um, and uh, he sets about inventing the printing press centuries early. Early, he invents. Uh, he yes, he builds a distillery and makes and makes booze. Right. Of does, does and he invents a lot a lot of economic techniques. And it's a great book. And you really you really root for it. this. You really root for this guy. And actually, Belisar, General Belisarius, the guy who's basically the real historical model for Belrios, Belrios, Vicentine, General from Byzantium, who was. Um, who well tried to claw back the, the empire and actually conquered some things and got a bit too it was too good that he was killed for his trouble and executed by the by the East Roman uh, by the Emperor of Byzantium by Byzantium mm -hmm. sorry I'm pronouncing it the German way now now and um, and he actually appears as a character in Less Darkness Fall when the the protagonist uh, basically recruits him uh, recruits him as in okay. They, you're smart. We can use you. Forget, uh, forget, forget Byzantium. And uh, in the end, they set they set off for the new world. World. They have really built some very good ships. They set off for the new world. New world because our hero wants to wants tobacco. <laughs> and it's I mean <laughs> it's obviously a very different take on the same story. And yeah, I I love that idea. And uh, it, have have you read? Um... Harry Harrison's Death World trilogy, by any chance? Um, I have a long time ago. The middle story in that was very similar in that he find he winds up um, on this primitive planet, uh, but he's a modern guy with all the knowledge of the modern modern civilization and technology, and he works his way up uh, through like all sorts of adventures to the point where he is basically the king of the planet because he has all the knowledge to, to, you know, create the best weapons and all that stuff. Um, a really interesting story. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of Harry Harrison. Oh um, yes. He's but... great. He was also, I discovered him a little after Asimov. Yeah. He's, he's a lot of fun. Uh, another one I really love is Sheckley, Robert. Sheckley. Oh yeah. Sheckley's great. Um, yeah. We have a great um, the Shackley story, the Robert Shackley story, The Price of Pearl, has an amazing German TV adaptation from the early seventies. I think I don't know that one. I think I just... it's a, it, it it used to be on YouTube. I'm, I will send you the link if it's still there, but it's, it doesn't have subtitles. But ba it's basically a kind of reality show show story where some guy is uh, where a guy is um, guy can win one one million it's probably dollars in the in the American world in the story and it's uh, one million Deutschmarks in the German movie if he survives uh, this uh, if he survives being hunted by by killers for a week and it's a huge uh, and um, and they made a they made a TV adaptation in the early 70s which is structured like a fake TV show it looks like a real 1970s lost TV show it's like watching TV from a parallel universe like this and there is these weird dance interludes with German TV shows it's a, the guy who plays the host of the show was a real TV host at the time Dieter Thomas Heck and he was known he was this motor mouse mouse host he hosted a hosted a game shows and but mostly he was known for, for hosting a music show at the time and um, and um, it looks like a real TV show it has fake commercials in the middle and uh, and it's ama absolutely amazing amazing because and uh, when it first aired People didn't know this was fictional. It's a kind of war of the world situation. They assumed it was a real TV show, and they wrote letters to the they wrote letters uh, letters to the TV station 
a lot of people complained like, oh my God, how can you show such a horrible show? So they're really shooting the poor guy. Guy. Some people, a lot more people applied like, oh, I want to be a contestant on the show. Where can I apply? And some people said like, oh, um, can I perhaps play one of the killers? Because I think that would be really interesting. <laughs> yeah, it was a, was a huge scandal and it was never shown again for decades afterwards. Partly because, wow, of, because of the scandal and partly because, and this is their own fault, they forgot to pay exactly for the license. They, they, they bought the license from the, was in some kind of anthology, German science fiction anthology, and they bought the license from the publisher, but never paid Shackley. And Shackley got angry, of course, and wanted to be paid, which is yeah. totally his right. Right. And yeah. I think they resolved it sometime before his death. Yeah. My favorite is, is Mind Swap. I think that I read that one as a, in my teens. And, yeah. and I remembered you, it all my the life. The ones you read earlier are always the ones that stick with you. I yeah. Think. Yeah. And then I, I but I, found, I, I looked for it and found it in a book of uh, a compilation of five novels of his. And they were fairly all fairly short novels, but they were all great. Every, everyone was uh, just so entertaining. And he has such a, you know, a, a loose kind of like a, a wild imagination yeah and, he was, he and, was, and very was very funny yeah he was fun. actually still uh he was he, he lived fairly long he lived into the to the 2000s i think it he actually died not that long ago and yeah, that's was, when i he lived fair he lived well into the into the i remember he was still alive I think when i first the on the internet but it, it was his death or, or reading about his death that, that made me go back and look for, for that book again and find that, that, um, that, that uh, compilation of his novels. And I was so glad I did. I, I wanted to get to one more question, um, running on a little um, long here, but that's fine. Um, I wanted to know about um, if you have any favorite adaptations, like, I mean, we've talked about Apple's adaptation of Foundation having some issues, um, but I'm wondering if you can think of any adaptations of Golden Age sci-fi um, that really work. Yeah, that's a bit of a, <laughs> that's a bit, that's really difficult. Actually, one that does work work, um, but it's probably hard to find, is the 1979 anime adaptation of the Captain Future. The Captain Future stories by Edmund Hamilton are not very good, let's say it. But uh, there was an adaptation, an anime adaptation in 1979, which was one of my foundational signs. It, it aired on German children's TV, uh, cut, really, cut really badly. And that's, uh, that's still a really, really good adaptation, I think. What do you think of Dune, the various attempts to do Dune? Yeah, Dune, uh, is, uh, Dune is, of course, it's, uh, Dune is not Golden Age. It came out in 1965, so it's, it feels right. a bit like, it feels more Golden Age than New Wave, but it's not. But, uh, I mean, the latest Dune adaptation is, I think, pretty good, at least the first half. I have, of course, no one has seen the second half yet. Yeah. Yet, but and I do like the Lynch version, version but it's, uh, but it's uh, very, very compressed. Yeah, and it has some kind of cringy parts. Yeah, but um, actually, not a, actually go, for some reason there are not a lot of lot. And nowadays, uh, not a lot of people look towards the towards the golden age of science science fiction for stories. To even though they are okay, I mean, you you probably have to change from Mars to planet or whatever, whatever. But there's a lot of good stories there. But there hasn't a lot of. I think most of the better adaptations of. Uh, Golden Age science fiction were TV adaptations that uh, 
er hat es part of Twilight Zone, also the Outer Limits, uh, Limits, and uh, there was one, I think Out of the Unknown was a British one, who actually did uh, the two, um, two Asimov Robot, uh, the two Daniel Olivaf and um, Elijah Bailey stories. They actually did an adaptation of that, but uh, it's lost because the BBC wiped its tapes sometime <sighs> in the 60s. That's terrible. Star, yes, um, I think. Uh, that's another it, one it in stars, the, it, Peter Cushing. Peter Cushing is, I think he's done the yes. is he, is he I think I've seen, I've seen screen grabs from those. Yeah. And, um, but that's another part of my great hope with this, with foundation, like taking off is I hope that it spurs like somebody to do the robot stories. Oh, well, those would be much because I'm um, sorry, the, the robot, the robot adaptation is, uh, I mean, the it's robot a, it's and empire not, it's not absolutely not iRobot. It's not, yeah, so I mean, starting I, with... iRobot isn't a story. It's a short story collection. But yeah. what I want to see is, uh, is, uh, is Bailey, is Elia Bailey and Daniel Oliver um, fighting crime as, um, I mean, there was a, a human and robot partner partner crime uh, cop show a while back but it uh, it died after a single season style start carl yeah. urban who was who plays scotty in the no he's not scotty but he's no he's the bones in the the jj abrams star trek movies scotty is simon mm. Penn. at any rate that that's uh, probably the easiest thing to do would be the would be the elia bailey and daniel oliver you have the you have um three not you have uh, well you have uh, two novels and short story and you can Mix in some other cases of the week. That would be really great to do. And yeah, the and other I would, one I'd I would love, love to see is uh, is Susan Calvin, Mike Donovan, and Barry Powell solving problems yeah. with malfunctioning robots. Yeah, yeah, that would be fun. Actually, so maybe... uh, for robots, uh, um, there's a, there was a really Henry Kuttner, who was um, another. He was a contemporary of. He was a little bit older than Asimov. He died very young, which is why he's mostly forgotten these days. He died. He was. I think only 40, 42 or something, was very, very young when he died. Died. Um, he wrote stories about, he also wrote some, wrote stories about an inventor who is absolutely brilliant, but only when he's drunk. Drunk. And uh, <laughs> when he's sober, he can't remember what his inventions do. And he also, there's also a robot in those stories. They are hilarious. If you like the funny Asimov stories, those are, you will like those as well. Yeah. Because Asimov could be funny, which a lot of people nowadays forget. He could be. He I mean, you know, victory I, and unintentional and robot AL seventy-five number. There are, there are a hilarious. There are some humorous scenes in Foundation, not very many, but uh, like the uh, I think the one my favorite comic scene is the um, I call it Tea Time with Dagobert, the ninth uh, of Neo Trantor, uh, where you know he, that scene where they're trying to pull it, get information from him about you know uh, where uh, where the second Foundation might be on Trantor. Uh, and he's just, uh, you know, mad and like thinking about all he can talk about is uh, Gilmer trying to take over and thinking that Gilmer is still alive and that he's going to get his empire back and all that. And I had great fun on Selden Crisis recreating that little scene. <laughs> yeah, I mean, actually, we, it's, uh, we forget these days that Asimov could be really funny, even in Foundation. And uh, they're also funny, just funny stories and also... He gets a bit of he gets a lot of flag for his rather plain style, but he actually wrote some pretty actually some really good and funny dialogue and um, well written dialogue in foundational, but also in the robot stories. Uh, stories. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of there's uh, there's a lot of stuff which is actually good and okay. The dial. I mean, what what was uh, Powell and Don? 
mit der Rede von der Retro-Jugend, so was Cats da drin mit One of the Powell and Donovan Stories, und ich war struck by how actually funny a lot of the dialogue was, including Reason Adam was... of making fun of the whole, the whole as you know Bob thing, thing because, yeah. uh, so, because that's a thing, the, ro the robots are controlled by, that's one robot controlling subsidiaries via positronic field, and they're like, oh, what's a positronic field? Well, actually we don't know, and the specialists don't know either, so we just, and at one point, I think Donovan goes into, well, as you know, You know, Greg and Greg Powell says, I know that you don't have to explain. And then Donovan is like, well, but I need to explain. I need to say it now. So just shut up. It's hilarious, of course. <laughs> and of course, Asimov also made a really cringeworthy what is a Selden crisis info dump in, uh, in The Merchant Princess. Actually turned it into a vital clue in the mystery because The Merchant Princess is, is in essence, it's a mystery story. And Asimov was, of course, also a very good mystery writer. Which is again kind of this is actually one thing I'm sad because I bought all the Asimov books in the which this um, import bookstore had, which is long gone gone by now. At least, well, the bookstore is still around, much diminished, and they no longer they only carry uh, things like art books now. They no longer carry they no longer have the foreign language section, which was so wonderful. And uh, they had a lot of these Black Widower mysteries, and I always skipped over those. Like, oh well, I don't want to read to read mysteries. Those are for old people. Those are for my mom. And I now wish I would have bought all of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I haven't read any of those and I want to. Yeah, the, apparently, the, uh, uh, the characters are apparently his, his uh, writer pals. pals uh, for, so people like Lester Del Rey and so on. Um, I think Alspike the Camp is a character as well. So a lot of his old writer pals are characters in the story, which is, of course, uh, and uh, solving mysteries, which is, of course, just, just fun to imagine a lot of. Uh, a lot of golden age science fiction writers sitting around solving murders. Yeah, that sounds like a great premise. Well, um, I'm going to have to say goodbye, but before I do, um, uh, I want you to uh, let us know about anything in your world upcoming, any events or publications or anything that you want to want our listeners to know about. Yeah, well, um, the next thing I have coming out actually is a thing that arrives on September 7th is um, is a story in Simultaneous Times, Volume uh, 3, which is a um, Simultaneous Times is, um, is, a, is a fiction podcast, a science fiction podcast by Space Cowboy Books, which is a, which is a science fiction specialist bookstore in Joshua Tree in California. And they have a, pod they have a fiction podcast and uh, they put out a print anthology. This is already the third volume. And I have a story in that one, which is uh, which does poke fun at golden age tropes. It's not, so it's not a robot. It's a bug-eyed monster story. A story. And then later in the year, I have a short story in a, in an anthology called 99 Fleeting Fantasies, edited by Jennifer Brozek. And um, that's coming out later in the year. I don't, uh, I actually have to look through the proofs, <laughs> proofs so soon and soon. So it's, pro so it's probably sometime in the third or fourth quarter of 2023. Well, you do keep busy. Yeah, those are the, the next ones I actually have coming up. That's probably, and um, well, otherwise, no, I'm not really, I'm not really planning on any, um, on any cons this year. I may be doing some virtual programming for the for the 2023 Worldcon, which is in Chengdu, China, and therefore very, very difficult to access, access yeah. and. Uh, I'll probably, but, um, I'll very likely be at uh, the, the 2024 Worldcon in Glasgow, Scotland, which is a bit nearer to me. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, that sounds like something worth shooting for. 
Yeah, it's a, I have a membership, so yeah, let's hope it works out. You can't always know if it works out, of course, but mm-hmm. let's hope. Well, uh, maybe maybe I'll meet you there. Yeah, uh, if we'll you're there, feel. always feel free to say hello. I don't, I, I mostly don't, I don't do a lot of the, I want to do more, I want to do, but some, there's some US cons I really want to do, but it's always, always, uh, it's a travel, it's a, it's a problem with the, it's also 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 a time issue issue. I have yeah. elderly parents and don't want to leave them alone for too long. So yes, we'll see. <laughs> yep. Okay. Well, someday. Um, and uh, it's been wonderful talking to you. Um, we'll have to do this again sometime. Yeah, I'm uh, always happy to talk about uh, Asimov, Golden Age science fiction, and uh, and well, a lot of other things too. As long as okay. it's science fiction and fantasy related. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, and my actually my next review should probably be coming out sometime later tonight for the I last be... uh, last episode because um, I didn't get it finished yesterday. It was late. Yeah. I was like, okay, no, no, I'm just shutting this it down. It will be my first thing I look for tomorrow morning, mm-hmm. <laughs> or tomorrow night maybe. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, well, it might be morning by your time because uh, you're behind yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, it's been great. Yeah, it was lovely talking to you, and thanks for having me. And yeah, hope to get to talk to you again sometime. Yep. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.